and also what I can only describe as round kneecap bones. It's a type of sesamoid bone that we call the patella to create like a crown. Like crown for the king of England crown, like an actual crown made of human bones. It's really creative actually. Welcome to A Popular History of Unpopular Things, a podcast that makes history more fun and accessible. My kind of history is the unpopular stuff, disease, death, and destruction. I like learning about all things bloody, gross, mysterious, and weird. And today, we're going to get a dose of all of my favorite things. Underneath Paris are miles of tunnels, and some of those tunnels are home to the catacombs, underground spaces that are often used as burial chambers. But what attracts people most to the catacombs of Paris are the walls of bone. Intricately designed human skulls, femur bones, and more are arranged to create haunting walkways that line Paris's underground. The bones are 100% human, 100% anonymous, and there are an estimated 4 to 6 million Parisians down there. So today, we'll go exploring through the catacombs together. I want to get a sense of why the catacombs were built, where the tunnels came from, why there are so many bodies down there, and also see if they're unique. Are there other burial grounds out there that are artfully lined with human bones? Are there more macabre subterranean spaces out there? As we usually do here on the AFOUT podcast, that's A-P-H-O-U-T, by the way, AFOUT, we'll get started by taking a look at the historical context that explains why the catacombs of Paris exist. Also, cheeky disclaimer, I am not making an attempt at any French pronunciation at all through this episode. I'm English, I'm not French, so I outright refuse on principle. So on that note, let's get started. We are not going to start with the arranging of bones on the walls like a gruesome artistic monument to death. We'll do that later. To properly understand the catacombs, we need to go back further. What explains why there were so many bodies? And what led to the decision to put them under the streets of Paris? Well, let's start with how gross Paris was in the late 18th century. That's the late 1700s. Now, if you listen to episode 8 of this podcast, The London Cholera Epidemic, then you learned a bit about how stinky London was in the mid-19th century, that's the 1800s. They didn't have a proper sewage system in place. People would just dispose of their waste in little buckets, which they would then toss into the street. Others had cesspools, where their waste would drop into a bin, and night soil men, which is a fancy word for poo picker-upper, would then be paid to periodically clean it out. Paris, in the late 18th century, was similar in terms of a lack of sanitation. There was no proper way to dispose of poop, so people did what would make their immediate home area less stinky, right? They would toss it in the streets, or better yet, into the river. Paris, you see, is divided by the River Seine. It flows northwest through the city and eventually empties into the English Channel. I think I'm saying that right. River Seine, S-E-I-N-E. Sane? Sign? Eh, whatever. I'm not gonna pronounce French stuff right. Now, for growing cities, rivers became convenient places to dump waste because it would just flow away, right? Out of sight, out of mind. But what they didn't consider was all of the pollution they were creating. They knew it stank, but they didn't really have the scientific knowledge or means to solve the problem. 
Now, I'm not going to go too deep into the specifics of all that. I recommend going back to listen to episode 8 on cholera to get a more in-depth look at how germ theory evolved over time. But in Paris, things were stinky. We're talking pre-revolutionary Paris right now, by the way. Before the guillotine, before they chopped off King Louis XVI's head, but we'll get there soon enough. In addition to human waste being improperly disposed of, there was also lots of animal waste. It littered the streets. But another big offender was the tanning industry. Tanning is the process of turning animal hide, or skin, I suppose, into leather. It's not as simple as putting it out in the sun to dry, no. Tanning involves a lot of chemicals, and it's pretty detrimental to the environment, especially in the late 18th century. Here's how they did it. Tanners would first soak fatty hides in an alkaline lime solution. And by the way, we're not talking about a big old vat of fruit, all right? Different lime spelled the same. Chemical lime is normally calcium hydroxide that comes from limestone. I'm not going to get into the science or engineering of this one. Just please keep in mind they are different products. So first, they would soak the fatty hides for around three weeks to help remove all that fur, that fat, that gristle, that hair. The process also happens to release tons of ammonia, so it is noxious, and it reeks horribly. Have you ever smelled a cat litter box that hasn't been cleaned out properly? It reeks, and that smell is ammonia. It's the cat urine that does it. It's pretty bad. It's a very distinctive and disgusting smell. Now, after those three weeks, tanners would use a device that looks a bit like a horsehair de-shedding tool, or maybe an undercoat remover if you're a dog person. It also looks a bit like one of those old-timey two-person saws, like a long metal thing with two handles on the edge. Now, they would use that to remove all the loose hair from the top of the skin. Next, they flip it over, and they cut away all that grisly flesh from the underside, because leather doesn't have fat on it, right? It's just the skin. All the fat, the flesh, and the sinew needed to be removed. It also stinks, by the way, from the three-week liming process. Just rotting, gross animal flesh soaked in chemicals. Ugh. Now, old-school tanners, from this point, would then use a mixture of dog feces, bird droppings, and hot water to release any bacteria and get off any excess lime. And I refuse to do more research into how that works, and I imagine it's dubious science at best, because, you know, the 18th century. Now, after its poop bath, they would mix it with human urine. And there was plenty of urine to go around, you just go to the corner and find the nearest chamber pot, right? Free materials. And I, again, refused to research what they thought human pee would do to help the tanning process. I mean, I'm sure there's a science there involving the ammonia or the uric acid. I just really, really don't want to add that to my already really strange Google search history. But anyway, the hide is immersed in poop and urine and other gross things, by the way, like animal brains and livers. And eventually the thing is ready to go. You can sew it together at this point, or stretch it out, and then leave it to dry, and then boom, you got leather. If you want to speed up that drying process, you can also use smoke. The phenol from the smoke helps with tanning. And if you're fancy, you'll polish it afterwards to keep it all smooth, right? You don't want it to get all hard and crusty, but either way, at the end, you've got leather. Now, the problem here is that not only does tanning produce that noxious, disgusting smell, but all of the previously mentioned ingredients, the poop, the lime, all of it, were just dumped into the river when finished. 
And as Paris grows larger over time, more tanning industries open up to cope with the growing demand for the product. At one point, East Paris had over 30 tanneries, and they were all dumping straight toxins into the river. The more people migrate to an area, the greater the number of polluting industries, like tanneries, opened up, but also the greater amount of general waste produced by the larger population. Without a legitimate sewage system, the stench problem only got worse over time. And then, in 1789, the French Revolution began. Let me give you a brief background of the French Rev and how it relates to our story on the catacombs of Paris. Pre-revolutionary France was politically and socially organized into three basic classes. The French clergy made up what we call the first estate. They were the Roman Catholics, and it was probably about half to 1% of the French population. Around 100,000 archbishops, bishops, priests, monks, friars, and nuns. They did not have to pay taxes, but they did receive 10% of the taxes through tithes. The second estate was the nobility, so members of the royal family and people who held titles like duke and duchess and count and baron, those people. They also did not pay taxes, but were given special privileges and, and made money somehow without really having to do much work. They made up about 2 to 2.5% two of the population. The third estate, so the remaining like 97, 97.5%, everyone else. Peasant farmer, third estate. Wealthy merchant-class bourgeoisie, third estate. Parisian tanner over on the east side, third estate. They were the ones paying taxes, and a good chunk of this third estate was made up of the poor who really couldn't afford to pay them. Meanwhile, clergy members in the nobility are living it up, wearing the finest imported silks and linens, throwing huge parties. It was a big slap in the face to the commoners. A big part of what led to the French Revolution was this really obvious display of social inequality. The rich don't need to pay taxes and in fact receive tax money from the poor. The political system also worked so that each estate got one vote when it came time to deciding things. So the first and second estate always voted together, blocking out the third estate all of the time. Nothing would ever change with this system in France. So, long story short and simplified, the people rebelled. On July 14, 1789, Parisians stormed local armories and grabbed guns, then marched towards Bastille Prison in Paris. They freed all the prisoners there and began cheering in the streets, because this was the first symbol of the people fighting back and winning against the old regime that kept them poor and unequal. Let's go Frenchies. Now, at this point, you may be thinking... But Kelly, what does this have to do with the catacombs? Patience, my friends. I always bring it back around to the main idea. So the big theme of the French Rev was equality. It was part of their slogan, right? Liberté, égalité, fraternité. Liberty, equality, fraternity. And one of the things made more equal during the French Revolution was the manner of executions. In pre-revolutionary France, even the death penalty was rife with inequality. If members of the first and second estates were executed, they were beheaded, old school style, with a sword. They would be kneeling, and from behind, the executioner would raise his arms and swing a sword with all of his might, chopping the head off from the body in, hopefully, one fell swoop. It would be a horizontal cut, if that makes sense, like straight through the neck. Did this sometimes go wrong? 
Oh, absolutely. If the pressure of the moment got to our executioner friends, or if they just didn't hit at it properly, the swing wouldn't go all the way through. Sometimes multiple hacks would be required, all the while the person is screaming bloody murder on the floor. It's rough. It was rough. But most of the time, the executioner was good enough to do it in one swift movement, and that was that. It's gruesome, but it is nothing compared to what the commoners got. For the third estate, death would come in one of three ways. They could be hanged, which should be self-explanatory by this point. They could be burned at the stake, which should also be self-explanatory at this point. Or they could be broken on the wheel. Let me explain. The breaking wheel was literally a wheel, a big old wheel that came off a horse and carriage about the size of a man, one of those big wooden ones. And it could be used in several ways. Sometimes you might just be bashed with this thing until you died of blunt force trauma. But usually your arms and legs were broken with it and then woven into the spokes of the wheel. The idea was to cause immense pain, not just get death over with as quickly as possible like with the rich people. So the wheel would sometimes just be straight dropped on your limbs. The thing is heavy enough to just crush them outright. So after all of your limbs are broken, you get braided into it, and then the whole wheel is stuck up on a pole so your mangled body would be facing the sky. The executioner might use a garrote or a thin wire to strangle you at this point. Sometimes they'd decapitate you. Other times they would light a fire under the wheel. But either way, your body was left up there after death, and birds and other scavengers would feast on your rotting flesh. Yum. Oh, by the way, the method of execution depended on the crime, if you were wondering which one you got assigned to, right? Murderers and rapists were usually put to death on the wheel, while thieves were more commonly hanged. My my overall point here is that even in terms of executions, the French suffered from inequality. But there was a fix for that. The French Revolution was a general overhaul of all things unequal within the old regime, and death was one of those things. The guillotine, which can actually be traced to the 16th century, that's the 1500s, was a device that physician Joseph Guillotin first recommended as an equal method of execution. Nobility and commoners alike would be put to death in the same way. It was named after him for this reason, but please know that he didn't actually invent it. Now, if you've never seen it, the guillotine is an angled blade set at the top of a wooden frame. The soon-to-be-executed had his or her head locked in a pillory at the bottom. Think those old-timey stocks, right, where the head and the arms were locked into a board of wood with appropriately sized holes. It was that, but only the one hole for the neck to fit through, and it was locked, of course, so you couldn't pull it out at the last second. The executioner then released the blade, all 77 pounds of it, that's 35 kilos for my European friends, and it falls seven feet down the frame and cuts right through the neck. Because the blade is at an angle, it won't get stuck. It's a clean, quick, efficient cut. And although we can't exactly interview the victims after the fact, scientifically, it cuts the head off faster than your nerves can process the pain, which means you don't feel the actual cut. You feel the fear leading up to it, but no actual pain. Oh, oh, fun fact. It's estimated that the human head has enough blood in it after being guillotined off that you maintain consciousness for like five to six seconds. Neato. I bet that's really, really terrifying. 
The guillotine, though a gruesome spectacle, was meant to be a more humane and equal way of performing executions. It was first used in 1792, and its last recorded use, you may be surprised by this one, was 1977 in France. Quick tangent. It's a tangent on a tangent, really. The guillotine is probably my favorite method of execution, with the breaking wheel pretty high up there, too. They're just so gross. I love them. But have you guys ever heard of the medieval execution technique known as death by sawing? You know, like a saw, like you cut down a tree with a saw. Death by sawing. Now, this one's a doozy, particularly for my male listeners. Now, if you... (laughs) If you were condemned to death by sawing, you'd be strung upside down, naked, so your feet are in the air and you're just hanging there, right? And then, two men with one of those big tree saws, you know, handle on each side of a nasty-looking blade, would saw you in half. But since you're hanging upside down, that means that they would start with your squishy personal bits and work their way down until they cut through the head. Yikes. I mean, it's bad for both sexes, but I just feel like it's worse for you men to have to imagine being cut, you know, that thing first. And anyways, now that you're thoroughly skeeved out, let's go back to France. During the French Revolution, the guillotine was used to excess. Even King Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette had their heads chopped off with the thing. Their bodies were just thrown into mass graves along with everyone else. It was also used a lot when the revolution went out of control during the Reign of Terror, a period of time from June 1793 to July 1794 when over 17,000 people were guillotined in Paris for the most basic of crimes, like being accused of not supporting the revolution enough. My point is that now in addition to the normal quantities of dead bodies that a city produces, the French Revolution added tons more. And I had already mentioned that Paris was growing in size. And something you may not immediately think about, but I sure do, is where do all the bodies go, right? Like, we certainly don't have the space for individual graves. So, the dead would be put into mass graves. Paris had had mass graves for the last 800 years before the French Revolution. One popular place was the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents, said in probably broken French as the Cemetier des Saints, Innocent. And I am purposefully, by the way, not looking up how to pronounce that, so if I'm close to being right, then it's just sheer luck. My rule of thumb is like to only pronounce half the letters, and it usually works out for me. But anyway, as the population of Paris expanded, the pits there started to fill up, and before long, and especially with all the death during the French Revolution, there were corpses overflowing from these cemeteries, just lying on the streets. Commoners and nobility alike were just rotting away in alleys, clogging up the River Seine. So now we need to add the stench of rotting human corpses to the already really stinky Paris. Great. So therein lies the problem that leads us to the catacombs. What do we do with all of these bodies from the last 800 years of burials? The city is now full. No more room for corpses. Yet there will only ever be more corpses, right? Plus the stench was just unbearable, so something had to be done and the bodies had to be moved. And that, my friends, is how the catacombs ended up being the home to millions of bones. But you know what? Before we continue, I have a quick promo for you again. So last week, I had Nedrick on, the artist behind my intro and outro song, Yellow Cake. The song is just fantastic, so I want to play it here in its entirety for you to enjoy. So give it a listen. 
You can listen to Yellow Cake and more of Nedrick's music on any of your favorite streaming services. You can also click the link in the podcast description. Now, back to the show. So, now we know where all the bodies came from. It's an overflow from cemeteries thanks to a growing population in stinky Paris. But that still doesn't explain how the catacombs ended up under Paris in the first place. For that, we need to go back even further. Paris sits on top of limestone and gypsum deposits. Now, this was potentially discovered by the Romans, who were known for using limestone in their cement. The Romans used concrete to build everything, and it was much better than the concrete we use now, by the way. Science only recently, and I'm talking like a few weeks ago, figured out why Roman concrete is better than our modern concrete. Their mixture is designed to react to seawater, forming minerals and crystal structures that actually help heal or stitch up any cracks. It actually becomes stronger over time. Our modern concrete is inert, meaning it is built so that it doesn't move. It's just a big old chunk of cement and sand and limestone, clay, chalk, and rocks. We don't want chemical reactions because they will make cracks in our concrete, and when our concrete cracks, it will crumble over time. Our concrete sucks, basically, when we compare it to the ancient Roman stuff. But anyway, though it's possible the Romans discovered all that limestone under Paris, there's no historical proof that they mined there. The first record of mining in Paris goes back to the 13th century, that's the 1200s. A town register notes that there were 18 quarriers in 1292, which implies that there was a quarry that employed miners. These would have been open-air quarries, the type you may be more familiar with, just a big old pit in the ground. I actually used to go scuba diving at an old quarry in Pennsylvania. It was called Dutch Springs. It was turned into a massive lake, which they then turned into a sort of scuba diver's amusement park. But it recently closed down after the pandemic, which is a huge bummer. Now, over time, these quarries were expanded as more people moved to the city. A growing market existed for Parisian limestone and gypsum. In fact, there's a particular type of limestone here called Lutetian limestone, also known as Paris stone, which became a super popular French building material. Gypsum, by the way, is used to create what we call plaster of Paris, which is a quick-setting plaster used to make cast molds of things. It doesn't shrink or crack as it dries, and it holds the mold really well. So therefore, it's really handy when taking impressions of your teeth, or making crown moldings for ceilings, or making plaster casts when you have a broken bone. It's known as plaster of Paris because there was so much gypsum mined from Paris. Now, by the 15th century, that's the 1400s, quarries were turned from open-air structures to underground ones. Vertical wells were drilled into the ground, and from there, miners would dig horizontally, creating the now-famous tunnels. And over time, as more and more tunnels were built, they developed ways of supporting the massive amount of weight that was now on top. But that's not to say that there were never any structural collapses. In 1774, so 15 years before the start of the French Revolution, there was a pretty big collapse. A huge chunk of the street fell about 100 feet down into the ground as a result of the collapse. A lot of deaths, of course. And after this event, architects and inspectors were sent down there to make sure it wouldn't happen again. There are a lot of tunnels down there, about 185 miles of them under the city. 
Now, when it was time to move the bodies out of the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents, workers spent a year digging bones and remains out of the pits. They'd be loaded up into wheelbarrows and then transported to the entrances of the limestone quarry on the southern edge of Paris. This was the area of the mines that would be redesignated as the catacombs. Now, even though the problem was really highlighted after the Reign of Terror created a whole bunch of fresh new corpses, the problem of overflowing cemeteries at Holy Innocence goes back to pre-revolutionary France. In 1780, the basement wall of a property that bordered the cemetery collapsed under the weight of corpses next door. It was gross. Imagine being in your basement room and the wall just caves in with putrefying corpses and skeletons just falling on top of you, trapping you there. Yeah, gross. So that same year, the cemetery was labeled intolerable because of the ever-pervasive stench of corpse. And I mean, the goo from these bodies was like seeping into the mud and getting everywhere. It flooded that poor dude's basement, and it was deemed a hazard to all people who went nearby. So they knew it was a problem. In 1780, it was officially closed, but they didn't do anything to help the stench from the existing bodies. One contemporary writer, so somebody who was there at the time it was happening, Louis-Sébastien Mercier, wrote that cadaverous miasmas threatened to poison the atmosphere of Paris. Now, if you've listened to that cholera episode, episode 8, you may remember that miasma is basically bad, stinky air, right? Before germ theory, most believed that you would get sick from breathing in miasma. So, of course, breathing in the oozing death from the cemetery's overflowing corpse pits would make you sick. At least that's what most people believed. It's also a big reason why there was a push to clean up the city starting in 1780. Mercier also claimed that wine and milk would sour if it was near the stench. Probably not, but I mean, that's what he said. He said that the, quote, cadaverous humidity, which is an amazing phrase, cadaverous humidity, would cling to the walls and get people sick for walking by it or, God forbid, touching it. He said, quote, to absent-mindedly place one's hand against a wall impregnated with this moisture was to expose oneself to the effects of the venom, end quote. It's worth noting that within 30 years, the place was cleaned up pretty nicely, actually. There were no more miasmas or cadaverous humid patches on walls, no more bodies lining the streets, and no more decomposed human goo leaking into the ground. Instead, there were gardens and pathways, and the air smelled like honeysuckle and lilac. Beautiful spring days all the time, right? It was certainly preferable to the rotten stench of pre-revolutionary Paris. So by this point, We know that Paris is gross. Bodies were overflowing, and there were functioning mines under the city now being investigated by architects and inspectors, and we needed a new place to store the dead. It just made sense to transport the corpses to the tunnels. Not any tunnel, but a particular set of them in the south. From around 1786, workers would move the bones at night to a mine shaft near the Rue de la Tombe-Issoire, or the Tombe-Issoire Street. They would wheel them over, dump them down a 20-foot mine shaft, and then go back for another load. It took less than two years to completely empty out the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents and other similarly stuffed graveyards, but a few decades more for the entire project to be completed, of course, because the French Revolution happened after it began. On the other side of the shaft, so underground, I guess, the bones would be carted through the tunnels and just kind of deposited throughout. Could they have just left them in piles? Yeah, they could have, but they didn't. 
Now, initially, the bones were dumped in piles, but the director of the Paris mine inspectors had a better idea. What if we arranged the bones in a visually pleasing way and turned it into a visitable mausoleum? Skulls and femurs, mostly, were stacked to create walls that still line the catacombs today. They even built rooms with displays of the various minerals you can find in the mines, rooms with skeletal deformities found in the decorating process, and different tablets they put on the walls with ominous descriptions like, Stop! This is the Empire of Death! In French, though, but I'm not even going to attempt that one. These old mining tunnels were transformed into a great ossuary, which is a room where the dead are placed. They became the famous catacombs of Paris. You can still visit the catacombs today. There are tours set up for you to explore designated parts of them, under a watchful eye, of course. However, the catacombs are also home to an underground community of people who call themselves cataphiles, people who love and love to explore the catacombs. They go down there in secret. It's, it's actually illegal. You're not supposed to be down there. But a lot of them just stay there permanently to live a life of freedom in their own little communities. There are huge parties thrown down there. Once, a fully functioning movie theater was discovered kind of underneath the Trocadero, if that makes sense. So, like, the subterranean portion underneath the Trocadero was like this huge movie theater. It had a bar and a giant screen and projection equipment with film reels. They even built a restaurant with tables and chairs. It was like a whole thing. Speaking of movies, <laughs> movies have been filmed down there, too. The two that I can think of off the top of my head are As Above, So Below, which came out in 2014. Super meh horror film, by the way. You're not missing much. The other one is older. It stars Pink, and it's just called Catacombs from 2007. Also very meh. But they both explore the otherworldliness of this underground ossuary, and they're both bad horror movies, I guess. As of now, As Above, So Below has a 28% on Rotten Tomatoes, while Catacombs doesn't even have a proper critic score, but it has a 22% audience score. So yikes. Now, some of you may be fascinated by the existence of a network of underground skeletal walls, but this is not the only ossuary that used remains to decorate the walls. In fact, there are more than 40 bone rooms around the world. Another really cool one is the Sedlitz ossuary in Czechia. But unlike the walls of the Parisian catacombs, the Sedlets ossuary has used bones to build some really fascinating structures. It's incredibly ornate. They even use skulls and a variety of bones which look like hip bones, and also what I can only describe as round kneecap bones. It's a type of sesamoid bone that we call the patella to create like a crown. Like crown for the king of England crown, like an actual crown made of human bones. It's really creative, actually. Now, the Sedlitz ossuary has, and I am quoting directly from an Atlas Obscura article here, quote, a splendid bone chandelier composed of almost every bone in a human body, two large bone chalices, four Baroque bone candelabras, six enormous bone pyramids, two bone monstrances, which are vessels used to display the Eucharist host, a family crest in bone, and skull candle holders. Festively looping chains of bone are hung throughout like crepe paper at a birthday party. End quote. Oof. So, that was your brief history of why there are catacombs made of human bones beneath Paris. And if you ever end up there, let me know what it's like. It's a bucket list destination for me, for sure. Thanks for joining me for this episode of A Popular History of Unpopular Things. My name is Kelly Beard, and I hope you've enjoyed the story of the catacombs of Paris. 
Thank you for supporting my podcast, and if you haven't already checked out my other episodes, go have a listen. I referenced episode 8 a lot today, the London cholera epidemic, so if you like disease history, go give that one a listen. Or perhaps episode 12 on corpse medicine, which is exactly what it sounds like. Now be sure to follow my podcast wherever you listen so you know when new episodes are dropped. And stay tuned to get a popular history of unpopular things.